0: Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Patrick Lawrence, who is an extraordinary writer, journalist. He is the executive editor of The Scrum. Uh, it's a column that he and our former colleague uh, Marshall Arbach and others are involved in. He's written many books related to foreign policy, and he's written Uh, some very very powerful things in recent weeks related to China, the Ukraine, the Biden administration and uh, Vladimir Putin. I find his work, going back to our mutual friend Chalmers Johnson and others, to have always been at the cutting edge. You probably would remember that Chalmers Johnson wrote a trilogy of books around the time of 9-11, uh, blowback and other things predicting the transformation of uh, the American leadership was going to run into some stumbling blocks. Patrick in his own books has really really emphasized that the 21st century is going to be different. Looking forward and looking back are going to be different things. But I thought at this moment in this acute angst someone like him could illuminate things for our audience, for our young scholars, and, and it would really be beneficial. Patrick, thank you for taking the time to join me today. It's a
1: great pleasure, Rob, and um very honored to, you thought of me to have me on and give me some time. Very, very
0: grateful. Well, I, how I say, you more than earn it. I'm the one who's fortunate here today, in my view. So, well, uh, any rate, let's talk about... You you had a recent article, and you cited a book from a man I once sat in on a course. When I was at MIT, I worked along with economics and engineering. I took a lot of courses in uh, arms control and disarmament, George Rathjens, Jack Rowena, Bill Kaufman, and others. And they sent me over some cross-registration to Harvard, and I did sit in on a course with Stanley Hoffman. So uh, in this context, Was it Primacy and World Order is the book you're citing? That's the launching pad. How did that inspire you, and where are we going?
1: You know, uh, it's very funny. That that Hoffman book, uh, Primacy and World Order, was published in 1978. I was a younger man. uh, I was an editor at the New York Times at that moment, right, when it came out. One sunny afternoon in June, I remember walking into a bookshop on my lunch hour, and I bought it. It's been a, it's been an important book for me ever, ever since. Uh, parenthetically, uh, it's remarkable the number of people who have made comments such as your own. Oh yes, I sat in on a Hoffman course, or uh, J- Jamie Galbraith said, oh, he reviewed my master's thesis. And, you know, et cetera, lots of people. Um, uh, look, uh, the title uh, The title says a very great deal. It, it, uh, four words, Primacy or World Order. It's a rather stark binary, and I, and I think Hoffman meant it that way. He wrote it in 78. A lot of us were thinking three years after the, uh, some would say the fall of Saigon, I would say the rise, uh 3 years after the defeat in vietnam the better among us were scratching uh, their heads what have we done wrong uh, how did we go wrong uh where do we go from here we ought to do things differently the world is another kind of place now etc cetera, etc cetera. these were the carter years basically right uh that's when the book came out uh it's 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 best understood as as a uh, a post Vietnam introspection, right, uh, uh, and that is what he came up with. He, uh, w- we Americans had a choice. We could continue to pursue uh, the primacy we uh, elaborated uh, rather swiftly after the 1945 victories. Um, uh, we could continue to insist upon that, right. Uh, Various ideologically driven crusades and so on. And, uh, you know, Wilsonian, uh, make the world safe for democracy, the, the whole thing. right? Uh, or we could develop what Hoffman called a world order policy. That was our choice. What was a world order policy? Well, one of the more interesting things he said about it was nobody can declare a world order. He didn't use the word multipolarity. I'm rather mystified. I don't. I, I. I can only conclude it wasn't in the lexicon at the time, or something, right? Uh, but that's what he meant. And in a multipolar world, it, it, by definition, nobody can stand up and say, "Okay, here, here's, here's the world order, right? it, The a, a world order policy reflects the reality that." The global order is formed one question, one conflict, uh, one interaction at a time. Uh, As my other half here said brilliantly when she was reviewing my Hoffman column, uh, world order is not a policy, it's a process. That's what Hoffman meant. So that was our choice in in brief, Um, and we made the wrong one. Uh, as I said in the column that in part brought us together um, it's uh, it's rather grim to reflect how pertinent Hoffman's book remains uh, because uh, we haven't got it done yet we we um i think for a variety of reasons we can go into them if you wish we simply can't Don't well, we, our leader, our our foreign foreign policy elites and so forth, do not seem capable of changing direction, of re-examining our circumstances. Uh, They're very wedded to uh, the realities of the first uh, 50 years uh, after the 45 victories. They're not brilliant at imaginative thinking, and a new, uh, a world order policy would require a lot of imagination, uh, creativity, uh, wisdom uh, of a sort that seems to be in short supply uh, uh, in Washington, and and courage. We have to do something new. That takes courage for a person uh, running policy in Washington, and they don't seem to have it. So there we are. You know, I, I thought that's why it was pertinent to bring Hoffman's book uh, off my bookshelf and put it in front of readers.
0: I'm very interested from the perspective that you have raised through uh, referring to Hoffman about where the obstacles are. Why can't well-educated, intelligent people in the national security apparatus of the United States see this. We might call "we" rather than "me" approach to the design and implementation. Why, a, what I'll call a co-authored world order,
1: It's nice, nice
0: distinct from an imposed world order. Uh, and I do sense from the echoes of Bismarck and others that there are times when which you might call uh, the instability at home, creates a a yearning for a foreign adversary that we can all become aligned and uh, united against. But there's another piece of this, too, and I'll call it the Daniel Ellsberg piece. When I was taking courses at MIT and Harvard in the 70s, about the time that book came out, the notion of mutual assured destruction. Tom Schelling's game theory and everything was very prevalent. Daniel Ellsberg has written a book called The Doomsday Machine who says if we degenerate into a nuclear conflict, particularly vis-a-vis Russia, we can destroy the upper atmosphere and all life on Earth. So the stakes are not who's got a broken arm from an arm wrestle. The stakes are related to what you might call an escalation that could lead to destruction of life on earth, we don't even get to the climate change challenge if uh, if we induce the climate change with this with this hideous outcome that some people are terrified of right now, perhaps with some basis
1: Your question is why w- why can't Washington think uh, new thoughts it has mul- it's a great question multiple answers right? I-, I think number one. Uh, Isn't it the nature of power? The possessors of power are are just always bound to be reluctant to surrender power. Um, They tend to think in a well-worn phrase, but perfectly good. They tend to think in zero-sum terms. If we begin adapting to a a world of uh, multiple poles. We lose. You know that's part of it too. Um, I think another part of it is nostalgia. I, I uh, one of my parents was horrifically nostalgic, right? Always remembering childhood, and uh, you know, as a as a as a boy and an adolescent, I. I grew extremely impatient with that, right? And um, I concluded um, years later that nostalgia is a form of depression, right? It, it's uh, it reflects a, a refusal or an inability to embrace one's present. Let's get lost in the past,
0: right? It's kind of a it's a reaction
1: to yeah, fear. yeah. Uh, uh, on, a pers- on a personal yeah. level, it's. Can be an irritation or something right uh, uh, on a national level, it's problematic, very it's troublesome to put the point mildly so and and it's plain the pentagon uh, perhaps most of all the Pentagon uh, certain factions in Congress right nostalgias uh, for nostalgia for the unchallenged, uncomplicated decades after the war, is very powerful. They don't, you know, uh, sort of flippant phrase, uh, why do people want to continue pretending it's 1955, right? Uh, But that's the impression you sometimes get, so nostalgia, right? Um, And, uh, you know, uh, again, multiple answers, right? Uh, I think another one, might be uh, a thought, uh, did, uh, did Chalmers uh, share this with me long ago? I can't remember. Maybe it was mine originally. Um, for 70 years, the policy cliques in Washington did not have to think. It was just do more of the same. That's another thing power does to people. right? Uh, we didn't need a foreign policy. And we didn't have one. We had a security policy, right? Is most pronounced across the Pacific. Um, Boutros Ghali, uh, who I greatly admired, uh, uh, after the United States uh, uh, arranged for his uh, ouster as Secretary General at the UN, uh, published his memoirs. And he concluded with the most delightful insight uh, Diplomacy is for the weak. The strong have no need for it, right? That was our problem for a long time. We had all the power we needed, and we didn't have to think. We did have no need for diplomacy. That's another re- And And now, uh, the 21st century um, demands... Uh, in one a- case after another, di- diplomatic solutions to things, uh, often with multiple parties at the mahogany table, and we we're sclerotic in in this way. We're unpracticed, you know. Uh, uh, you, you know, I, I spent many many years abroad as a foreign as a foreign correspondent. Uh, you meet embassy people all the time. Uh, You know, uh, I was in Asia for most of this time. Uh, New Zealand produced some excellent diplomats, right? Uh, um, Sometimes Australia. Some of the Southeast Asians, right? Uh, uh, Japanese foreign ministry, very, you know, very sophisticated organization. The way they trained people, they had institutional memory and so forth. The quality of foreign service officers at the United States embassies, wherever they were—K.L. or Tokyo or wherever—was just abysmal. We really, we really had no, as they say, we didn't have a deep bench, right? Um, these were, these were nice enough people who had no sophistication, no very little worldliness. Uh, you know, with some exceptions, I have to say, of course, exceptions. Uh, but you know, first secretary for political secretary and so on, that sort of thing. Yeah. I never went to the American embassies after a time. They never had anything, anything to say. Right, uh, boilerplate. Um, and so that's a, that's part of it too. Um, sclerosis. Uh, no need of diplomacy and. And there, and therefore, no capability. And we're going to have to learn this. So far, we've gotten, we've gotten to the point where it's mandatory to say diplomacy first. Well, that's progress, but those are just two words, um, and that appears to be as far as we've got so far.
0: <laughs> well, you you brought up, uh, Hoffman, and you brought up in a phrase just a moment ago we have to learn how does journalism and how does teaching of international relations at universities contribute to us evolving now or and what resistances are there to those two institutional forms of what you might call dynamic upgrading? Uh, uh,
1: uh, what, what a question uh, I, I lecture at Colorado College uh, once a, a spring semester every year right um, this summer, I'll, this year, I'll do it in the summer. Um, and, of course, as mentioned, I was a correspondent abroad for 29 years. Um, and I teach a course called Reinventing the Foreign Correspondent. It sort of goes to your question, right? <laughs> yes, <it> The does. <laughs> argument, and it, and the entire argument of the course arose from my experience in those 29 years. Almost all of them. Uh, among non-Western people, right? uh, and many of them among East Asians, right? uh, and and I concluded we we have to develop the capacity uh, to see from the perspective of others. We have to dispense with we they, right. If you read the foreign pages in the New York Times, implicit in them is a we-they, right? Uh, Self and other is the scholarly phrase for this sort of discourse, right? We don't have to agree with uh, whatever we are learning from the Japanese, but we need to understand it, as I say in my course, from the inside out, so we can reflect it. In, our, in what we write. And I mention this not because I assume I'm talking to a, a, a rooms full of correspondents. Of course, I'm not. This is something we all need to learn, right? And it's certainly something our policymakers need to learn, right? Uh, we have this U- Ukraine crisis now. I, I, I see no shred, no sign, uh, no evidence whatsoever that uh, the policy people in Washington uh, are the slightest in, bit interested in understanding this question from the Russian point of view. It's, uh, apart from the fact that it's unproductive, it's profoundly unprofessional. You know, uh, I, I think Chaz Freeman told me this. One of the first things a good diplomat needs to be able to do is to understand the other side so that one's responses, one's interactions and exchanges and conclusions and communiques and so on and so forth, right, reflect that. And you can actually progress. Um, Not only do we not have that capacity, I think just as sadly and just as worrisome We don't, we, Washington, doesn't seem to have any interest in developing it.
0: I'm very uh, energized as I'm listening to you because I heard a podcast the other day from the celebrated life coach, Tony Robbins, and he said, for someone to improve a relationship, you don't try to change the other person. You change your awareness of the other person so that they feel seen and safe. And I thought, wow, that sounds to me like a recipe for the foreign policy you would like to see as as distinct from within the family. But but it's human to human. I, I,
1: I, uh, I don't want to diminish the significance of politics and history, no. But there is a psychological dimension to so many of the questions that confront us. I, I drew this conclusion first in, the, in Southeast Asia, watching uh, nations such as Malaysia develop, you know, uh, and why they were very uneven in their development, um, incapable of absorbing uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, international assistance and so forth. It's psychological. They, I, I concluded, if people aren't ready, they're not going to get it done. You can pour all the money you want into Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia. It's when people are psychologically prepared that they are able to move forward with with all the assistance and... Uh, um, Advantages that may be at their disposal. Right? I, I'm so, I was sometimes accused of using psychology to blot out uh, historical and political realities, I'm chastened by that criticism. So I I, I mention now, you know, this this psychological dimension is one dimension of of numerous right? culture.
0: Well, I'm always uh, resonating with the wisdom of the famous psychologist C.G. Jung, who uh, the 10th volume of his collective works is called Civilization and Transition. And it's about seeing three things, the nature of the conscious individual, the unconscious dimension of that individual, and the collective unconscious, and how that differs from what you might call the mechanical man optimizing and improving and always going forward and uh, is is very different. What we call the shadow plays a very big role and it's not just the shadow of the other. I've also uh, I'm energized often by conversations I've had with Orville Schell uh, and he and uh, John Delury wrote a book called Wealth and Power, which said that the wounds of the Opium Wars and the Japanese invasion in the 30s in China are creating a desire, a yearning for them to, which overcome those wounds and evolve to a place not of unilateral global leadership, but at least being in the front row once again, like what they call the Middle Kingdom. Uh, at the same time, the United States, as you've been alluding to, is coming down the tracks thinking this is our system, fall in line, adapt to our leadership. And Orville and John really explored how with different philosophical systems, the Cartesian Enlightenment West and the what you call Taoist or Indian philosophies, Eastern philosophy, which are very different how it could create the basis for misunderstanding and error. And I know it a big, Brze, Brzezinski gave a speech 2010-2011 uh, in Montreal about exactly the same thing. How are we going to make a G20 cohere when the whole world is watching after the great financial crisis, doesn't believe in expertise, doesn't believe in governance, thinks things are degenerating. How are we going to put dumpty-dumpty back together
1: again. Hoffman's phrase to stay with Stanley Hoffman for just a moment. Sure. What a marvelous phrase, um, harmony amid cacophony, right? That, that's (laughs) what, uh, that's, that's what, a a world order policy would have among its chorus assumptions and objectives, right? Uh, and I, I i i often think um if if we could if we could learn to consider our circumstances in new ways we would realize that uh, uh our uh insistence on primacy hegemony if you like uh, i'm not allergic to the word empire uh it has it has some very deleterious consequences um, number one, we are a very lonely people. uh If you're the hegemon, by definition, you're up there alone. Uh, number two uh the burdens, this pretense of primacy imposes upon us, are very great, right? Uh, There are domestic consequences. Anybody who can look out their window can see them. Uh, Social disorder, infrastructure problems, and so on, right? Uh, um, uh, And also, we don't get any help in, in the way we make decisions. Because they have to be our decisions uh, on our insistence, I, I I sort of think sometimes uh, pick a question, environment or whatever it may be uh, a military question. How rich we would be, uh, uh, all we all of us right, uh, if we had. A, a multiplicity of voices weighing in here's part of the solution. look at it this way too, and what about that right uh we we would all be uh we would all benefit greatly from that it would be an, another kind of world right uh, it would be another kind of world order in the terms we're using today uh and uh Uh, the burdens on Americans would be much lighter. This is why the zero-sum syndrome is so regrettable. It keeps us from even imagining these questions of multipolarity, uh, uh, harmony amid cacophony, even imagining them uh, we're, we're We're so much in a posture of resistance, we never see over the hill to to
0: the benefits
1: We again are policy people
0: right? It's an interesting uh dimension here that I guess what i what feels like to me is there is a yearning to be emulated. the American model freedom, da, 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 the high-level principles, we want everybody to be inspired to join that vision which comes from the struggle and development of this country. But I'm I'm haunted a little bit right now. I've just finished a book by the, uh, he lives in Singapore, but I believe was born in India, Kishore Mahmoudi. Oh, yes. Huh. Well, he, he's got a new book called 21st Century Asia. And he's talking about these different philosophical perspectives, this need for difference, diversity, dignity, mutual respect, and things. But he said, what's really hard for him right now is he has a chapter, and it's, I think, I don't remember the title, but it's either the title or the subtitle Plutocracy or Democracy. And the question he's saying is if you have something that's for and by and of the 1%, in the United States is that what the rest of the world's going to be inspired to emulate? and he's he's actually saying if you will you got to practice what you preach and uh, yeah I, I know he doesn't listen to Barry White very often but that song uh, comes to my mind but but how do you take Mabubani's how they say challenge and com- how would I say, collide that with the desire, would almost call the vanity, the narcissism of a nation wanting to be emulated irrespective of its performance?
1: Well, um, we need to step back uh, rather far here, right? Uh, uh, let me take a few minutes with it. Uh, first of all, there is the e- ever-present... Uh, presumption somewhere in our unconscious of, of America as a chosen, providentially favored nation. Um, uh, it's been noted by some of the better historians uh, after the after the American Revolution. Uh, Americans really had no taste whatsoever for revolution anymore because they had theirs and they have it right, and we've got it right. And that's all we need to know, right? Now, if we have it right, then we better pass the word on, uh, you know, torchbearer of the world, uh, lighting the way, and so on and so forth, right? So that's that's deep within us as a people.
0: Uh,
1: Also, uh, I've been interested for some time thinking about how America was settled. You know, uh, the settlers... They didn't really have a lot of time to think things over. If they needed to build a corduroy road to get a half a mile further into the wilderness, that was the job. Uh, And from that, I think, has uh, uh, come down to us uh, a, a very strong preoccupation with method. Americans are interested in how. They're not really all that interested in why. Uh, You know, the why of it, we know about all that. The why of it is we are the new world and all all those questions are resolved, right? Commager pointed out in his wonderful book, The American Mind, America has never produced a first-rate philosopher with the possible exception of Emerson, right? So we're all about method. If you go to a dinner party or a cocktail party or something, listen to the conversation. It's always about how to do something, right? <laughs> it's really very amusing. And the first thing you ask, the first thing somebody asked you at a cocktail party, how'd you get here? Did you take, did you take the I 95 bridge, right? Uh, um, it's how, right? Method, technique, right? Um, and it, this computes down. Uh, as um, a givenness to technocratic solutions to all problems. And once we begin to dedicate ourselves to technocratic solutions to all problems, we begin to lose, we we want to impose them on on the rest of the world, uh, and at the same time lose all sight of culture, history, political traditions uh in some the, the humanity what makes other people human their aspirations and so forth none of that matters here you know this is what shock therapy and all that was about unless i read it wrongly um uh, and, and this is why we we we're not a match with uh we're not a match with the world around us you know uh the world around us, um, uh, as I mentioned in one of the commentaries that brought us together, uh, I find its roots in the so-called independence era in the '50s and '60s. But once again, the Cold War over, uh, the world is a great field of aspiration, uh, and um, we can't we can't hear these aspirations. They don't. Fit with us because nobody should aspire to anything more than what we have mastered. And here is the how of it. Here's how you do it, right? We're ahistorical that way, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I sense from what you're saying, the unmindfulness about why is. Dangerous. Why? What, Rabbi? Why you do something as opposed to how you do something?
1: Yeah.
0: No, it's if you're if you're. I'm being facetious, but if you're driving off the end of the dock, as long as you manage your car well and you just go into the ocean, and the car sinks, that's okay because you you drove skillfully, but you didn't choose where to drive to or why you want your car to go into the water. You know <laughs>
1: that book, The Promise of American Life? Uh, who wrote that? Crowley, Herbert Crowley, right? He makes a distinction in the early pages. Uh, He's just a passing thing, but it's always stayed with me, right? We're a nation of destiny. If you're a nation of destiny, you don't have to ask any why questions,
0: right? right. Uh. The higher powers are guiding you. It's all, yeah.
1: all resolved. We're <laughs> a nation of destiny. And we must become a nation of purpose. The difference between a nation of destiny and a nation of purpose is vast. When you have purpose, you have things to do. You're very cognizant of the why, right? In, in Greek terms, techni and telos. The, what are you working for? What's your north star? What's your intent? Right, uh, um, uh, and and this is a transition we need to make. We need to re-reckon ourselves uh, as uh, not a not a people with a destiny, but a people with a purpose. Then we can start saying, and this is our purpose. And this is why it is our purpose. This is our telos. This is our Uh, End point. This is what we strive for, right? Um, uh, You know, purpose and destiny.
0: Let me me, uh, shift focus. I think our exploration of this side of the ocean, whether it's Pacific or Atlantic, is important. But I'd like, because it's not something I'm particularly familiar with, and I know you are, I'd like to take us across to how Vladimir Putin is feeling and acting, and why I say that is I start from uh, my wife co-founded an organization called the per- Perception Institute, which studied the regions of the brain, mind science, and how to heal social and racial That's an animosity. That's
1: interesting proposition, yeah.
0: And and the punchline I'll I'll just use, I I think it's a fascinating body of work, but the punchline I'll use is when you shame somebody or when you threaten somebody, it makes it worse. So I'm looking at Putin sitting on top of 6,000 nuclear weapons, according to the newspapers.
1: They have 6,000. We have 5,600.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking at the fear all around the earth and the pandemic and other contexts, climate change on the horizon, but this coming on to center stage. I'm looking at how and, and curious to ask you what he must be feeling like about how, which you might call, the world has and the American-led world has and is imposing upon him. If you were his right-hand Strategist, how would how would you advise him to be behaving? In, in how does that differ from how he is behaving?
1: Uh, the other day, John Pilger, the Australian-British journalist, uh, sent me a excellent, map. Excellent, My. sent me a map, a map of NATO accession by color, right pre-1997, post-1997. There's nothing in that map we don't already know. But if you look at it, it is a very effectively graphic uh, image of how Russia feels, right? There are only two nations left uh, on the whole of Russia's western border that aren't NATO, Belarus and Ukraine. Last summer, we tried a color revolution in Belarus. It didn't work out. But that's what that business last summer was all about. Right. Uh, I looked at this map and I said, wow, Lukashenko. I don't really know a great deal about Lukashenko. He may not be a very nice piece of work, but Vladimir Putin is going to be his friend. <laughs> that's just based on the map. Uh, and... Um, and Ukraine, just below it, th- that tells you what you need to know, or it's a begin. It it starts you on the story of what, of how Vladimir Putin sees things. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the the topography has something to do with this. There's a very great deal of flat land between uh, uh, between the Russian border and. Whatever river uh, marks out the the rest, the Elbe or something, right? Uh, um, uh, very easily invaded. History uh, history uh, is the, the, the campaigns eastward to Russia. We all know them. Uh, that's part of it. What 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 I would do differently than Putin? You know, I did. I I know very. I, I'm, Pretty confident this, uh, uh, this move he made into Ukraine was hugely, he was very reluctant about it. People who watched him speak, people who are familiar with him, Russia watchers, uh, noted he was almost grief-stricken as he gave that speech announcing what he was going to do, what Russia was going to do. Right uh, this comes at the end of uh, uh depending on how you wanna count um thirty years of constant m- movement uh eastward, and part of that are all sorts of covert operations we don't even know anything about right uh um I, I'm not sure I would have done anything differently I, I, I think uh Putin made it very clear he said certain things in that speech I think we are well to take notice of and one of them is um on a couple of occasions uh, we i don't have a right not to do this uh,
0: mm-hmm. we uh we so owe it foreign, to the foreign yeah, yeah we, The foreign intrusion it, is imposing it, it, this reaction it, it upon me. It is
1: my obligation to do this. It is my obligation to our country and our people to do this. Uh, I, whether we object to that or not, we, we really need to get our, uh, we, we really need to understand what he meant there. Right Again, go back to the map right uh if if ukraine or belarus went into nato those frontiers would be a constant mess of incursions and sabotage and who knows what all right uh they would be very frayed borders he can't have that he can't have that right uh The popular trope now is Putin the madman. We can't understand him, he's lost his grip, right? Uh, This doesn't do. It simply doesn't do. Whatever you think of Putin, he has proven many, many times over that he is an accomplished statesman with uh, a a very sound grasp of history, right? Uh, uh, That's not an advertisement for Putin. These are just facts right you can you can that's interesting to me you can hate putin I, and still person, understand those two facts right
0: uh, you know, so you know. uh, it's interesting to me because the portrait that's painted to me as a consumer of a baseline american media would never have acknowledged that dimension of him You i mean you're seeing beyond which you might call the propagandistic wall that is the mainstream legitimization in the United States. I can't
1: cut my clothes to the fashion of the times, as Lillian Hellman once said, right? Uh, uh, (laughs) I I am sorry that that these points are so unpopular. That has nothing to do with whether or not I'm going to articulate them. I think this is exactly what I mean, meant earlier, when I said it is imperative upon us as a people as a nation-state, as as properly professional diplomats and statesmen to develop the capacity to see how the world looks from behind the eyes of other people. Uh, And what we are getting now is wall-to-wall resistance to this, right? It is, a, if you read the social media and so on and so forth, it is a major transgression now to express any understanding, I'm leaving out the word sympathy, to, re, to express any even rudimentary understanding of why Putin is acting the way uh, he is. I prefer to say Russia. I don't like this personalization of everything, right? Uh, (coughs) Putin the madman. I'm sorry, it's too flimsy. It's too silly, right? Uh, NATO has... This has nothing to do with NATO expansion eastward. That's another one you're hearing now. First of all, it's patently, patently false. But beyond that, it is one of the ways we are totally resistant to seeing this question from the other side's point of view.
0: So in essence, what we are fed is a vision of us resisting his aggression as in contrast with his resisting NATO and Western and U.S.-led aggression. History,
1: deep and near. Chronology since the 90s and certainly since 2014 the coup causality and responsibility we can't leave these things out and pretend to understand this this question this crisis and that's exactly what we're doing leaving it all out remember um richard pearl um Intellectual ornament for the George W. administration, right? After the attacks in 2001, he came up with this term, decontextualization. Remember that term?
0: Mm-hmm. Do you, I, I remember hearing yeah. it. I, I don't remember his, it in the his, context. His
1: immortal observation was we must not understand. We must not try to understand the terrorists. Any attempt to understand them is, is amounts to support for them.
0: Weakness. Yeah. That's
1: decontext. Yeah. In other words, I, I, I think he, he augmented the thought with uh, this is a crime and nothing more, and it should be treated as a crime. That's mm-hmm. decontextualized. I
0: saw some things yes, yeah. You know, yesterday I saw some things on Twitter that essentially were saying, uh, we can't afford to tolerate this negotiation between the Ukraine and Russia right they now. They said that. Uh, it was a Twitter article and, and another uh, a person who I follow replied and said, "What are you telling us?" It was a journalist, I believe it was CNN or somebody that had made this statement. And my friend's reply was, what are you telling us? You mean we have to go to nuclear war now? Like, what, what are you talking about? And then there was a whole discussion following my friend's reaction about how, don't, don't you understand how aggressive these people are being? And it's almost like, you know, the old uh, adage of game theory. There was a thing called the chain store paradox. Let's say you're Macy's in New York. Somebody opens a little shop. You don't crush them because they don't matter. But then 20 other shops open and all of a sudden Macy's is on defense. Everybody undercutting their prices. So you've got to go crush every little thing so that as long as you look tough, you've deterred everybody from exploring. And, uh, and that kind of sense that we've got to be super tough right now where what you might call the backstop is nuclear exchange in the context of what we call mutual assured destruction is quite daunting. How how far do you want to provoke a nuclear reaction? I I, I I don't know that much like I said that's part of why I invite you on because I don't quite understand but I feel like things are out of control. They're spiraling out of control. And where where is the healing going to be found?
1: What was Putin saying when he let it be known the other day, a couple of days ago, that he had authorized the nuclear deterrence programs in Russia, airborne, seaborne, landborne, uh, to assume a uh, status of standby alert. I gather it's a low, it's a it's a low status. It's not one minute to midnight. Uh, what was he trying to say there? It was a shocking statement, of course, right? Uh, I think what he was trying to say there was, look, I drew the line, you saw the line, there was nothing too complicated about my red line, and you crossed it. And I, I, I think Putin, this goes to the context of the putin Xi statement on February 4th, right? I think Putin sees this as a, as a moment to really clean things up and begin constructing a world order of the type Stanley Hoffman was writing about 44 years ago, right? I I think he sees this in very large terms. Um, And that's what I think he meant to convey when he mentioned the deterrence, uh, the uh, standby alert, right? They use the term deterrence. Implicit in that is, we're not doing this first, but we're ready for you, right? Uh, so I think he sees this as a big moment, capital B, capital M, right? Uh, um, uh, uh, of of historic ge- geopolitical consequence. And in the columns that brought us here, uh, that's my running theme. We are living through... A, we are living through a passage of very significant history. As I mentioned in one of them, it's very hard to understand one's present moment as as history, because you're inside it, looking out. You can't really, you know, you just see what's going on around you, the tick-tock of events and so forth, right? Uh, I think this is a moment where we need to step quite far back and recognize that we are in uh, a moment of a, a very great historical significance so that we can re- participate in it and respond to it uh, adequately a couple of sentences from the joint statement uh, the she Putin statement which which I I, I think is it's I, I I urge that we consider this statement in the context of the Ukraine crisis. The Ukraine crisis is, in a certain way, a subset of what they're talking about in this document. On on international relations entering a new era, that's part of the mile-long title of the document, right? Uh Today, the world is going through momentous changes, and humanity is entering a new era of rapid development and profound transformation, a couple of sentences later. A trend has emerged toward redistribution of power in the world. Some actors representing but the minority on the international scale continue to advocate unilateral approaches to addressing international issues. They're talking big thoughts here, right? Um, And uh, as one might have predicted, uh, the administration has had virtually nothing to say about this statement um and uh the new york times predictably enough sort of uh, purported to flick it off the table uh as as nothing i i think it would be hard to overstate the importance of it and i mention it here uh, whether you want to go into it or not is up to you rob but uh i mention it here because it gives an idea of the let's say the 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 scale of president putin's thinking The 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 significance he reads into this moment, right? Uh, In all honesty, I you know I'm not suggesting I hold a great candle for Vladimir Putin. I'm not that critical. I'm not as critical of him as others, right? Uh, um, uh, But uh, in all honesty, in the interest of of a new kind of world order. I want him to succeed. I want him to get NATO to back off. The way George Kennan, uh, Kissinger, uh, and the current Burns, the, William Burns, the current director of the CIA, advised, cut it out. Uh, this would be good for all of us. Right? There are a couple of unpopular ideas for, for you, Ramba. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah i'm i'm really i'm stirred here because that portion that you read from the joint statement seems like wise empathetic insightful people appealing for mankind in a, at a excuse my name robert johnson at the crossroads <laughs> uh but uh very good but i'm <laughs> see but i'm seeing a very uh an interesting element which is why I brought up the perception institute defining yourself with your military nuclear arsenal is igniting the fear on the other side and it, and it may contribute to making a frightened America on the one level more complicit in this aggressive agenda and number two, and this is what bothers me even more, it may ignite within the Biden White House a fear that if they're not tough, the population is going to migrate to more protection, meaning the Republican side in the next election. So I don't know what's being triggered. I can feel that, and this has been very valuable, the depth of what you have brought from that joint statement, and from your way of seeing this deep geopolitical history both in Asia and, and in Europe, and, and that there is a, what you might call, humane basis for the stand that Putin is taking. But I am concerned about how we de-escalate the boldness and the toughness on both sides to create the harmony that allows us to march down the road that you would like to see?
1: uh, uh, Bringing nuclear considerations into this was, you have to reckon that as a bad move, right? Uh, I, I think the point I made earlier as to what the Kremlin meant to say with that stands, it could have been made More artfully, no question of that. Uh, You know, the the nuclear the the nuclear danger is just too dreadful to put anywhere near the table, right? Uh, Parenthetically, apparently uh, uh, he was responding to comments uh, the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss was making. Uh, Liz Truss's I don't know whether you know much about Liz Truss.
0: Mm-hmm. I do.
1: She's she's got about as much qualification for standing as Brit- Britain's foreign secretary as my local librarian. Uh, she's completely over her head, right? Uh, makes one idiotic statement after another, which is quite dangerous, right? Um, you know. Uh, I find I find the statement regrettable, and you, and I think you may be right. It uh, it may advance antagonisms rather than de-escalate them, you know. But you know, it's remarkable, Rob, in the context we were exploring earlier. The quality of American statesmen and stateswomen. Liz Truss, foreign secretary. Antony Blinken, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Um, the, you know, they're, they're just not up to the job, right? Uh, Lavrov uh, is, uh, once again, uh, he's a very accomplished diplomat, right? Uh, while um, while uh, Javad Zarif was serving as Iranian uh, FM, I thought Lavrov and zarif were were uh among the most professional statesmen then active you know and going back to what we were saying earlier we we've had no need for diplomacy uh, expertise uh, um and um, this is what you get amateurs right and i've always i've i've remarked from the beginning uh, blinken and um Sullivan, have served their entire careers in advisory roles. They've been advisors on Capitol Hill and the State Department and so on. Uh, Biden put them in executive positions, a a, a radical
0: overpromotion. And had they had in the field experience in other countries where they're depth of awareness of say China or Japan or Russia uh in other words being advisors on Capitol Hill about something afar is different than living in the fabric of that place afar and bringing that insight back look
1: at Jake Sullivan's CV he doesn't know anything about China I don't think Blinken does either. I, I, I'm not familiar. Blinken surprised me. He's a superb education, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> um, born in America, his, wife, his mother moved to Paris, uh, spent his high school years in a French lycée, totally bilingual, uh, corporate lawyer in New York, and then in Paris, you know, a very worldly fellow. Uh, he surprised me. His... His his lack of sophistication, his his, his habit of repeating uh, entries in some American catechism uh, about human rights and democracy. In that um,
0: hmm. It's interesting because people like Ernest Hemingway used to write that you, when you're going to be most creative is when you go to a, a land that's not which you might call where you're unfamiliar, where your customs and unconscious habits and so forth are uh, not abided by. In, in other words, you no longer feel like you can dance and be part of the tribe. Now you become creative. Now you start to notice. Now you become yourself. And so those people who have that international experience are often deep from the way they've been challenged to be themselves. That's right. And That's uh, why Blinken
1: surprised and, me a
0: bit, yeah, but you talked about Hoffman earlier. He had come from France, as I remember. Yeah,
1: well, he was Austrian-born. Uh, his family moved to Paris. They moved to Neuilly. They must have had money, right? Uh, and um, his uh, his mother took him to the south of France uh, two days before the Germans uh, took Paris. Uh, after the war, he resumed his education in Paris. Uh, one of the Grand École, I think. I don't don't remember which one. Um, uh, And then he crossed the ocean and 50-odd years uh, teaching at Harvard. It all showed. I mean, you know, he was a very worldly fellow. I love what he said. I mentioned it in this column. I love what he said toward the end of his career when he returned to European studies. Uh, After many, many years uh, on American foreign policy, he said, you know, after a time, denouncing the same old repeated mistakes is no longer any fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, well, I have to, that, how would I say it feels a little bit like resignation, but, but I, how would I say, if you can redeploy yourself and be different somewhere else, maybe that's just smart. You made a
1: great contribution uh, to uh, International relations. Yes,
0: he did. Yes, he did. That was that was a modest uh, statement, probably uh, underestimating the impact that he had on on people like you and me and others. Uh, the, yeah. So you have an, a forthcoming book. Tell me just a little bit foreshadowing because I want to set us up for making the next chapter when that okay, book is released. Thank you, Rob. So what What's in what's well, in your uh, the last one in your vision? The
1: last one was called "Time No Longer." Yale put it out; it's still in print. Um, Americans after the American Century, right? Uh, kind of a study of um, of where we were after 2001, right? And, and uh, at, at, at that time, I. I said, uh, I argued that America had 25 years, counting from 2001, the book came out 2013, I think. America had 25 years, counting from 2001, uh, to decide whether it was going to um, move into a new position in the world relative to, the, in, to other nations with imagination and creativity and guts, as we were saying earlier, or messily and violently. Well, we've chosen the latter path. Uh, That's one way of looking at Ukraine, in fact. Um, uh, I'm not sure I want to write any more books like that. This new one um, is called The Journalist and His Shadow. Um, The title comes from a passage in... um, Nietzsche's the the wanderer and his shadow oh, right uh, um, and it's uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a kind of a genre bender it's about the crisis in our press um, so it's in that way analytic it's also history. My argument is that The American press had a very bad Cold War and never recovered from it uh, because it could never acknowledge its errors, and that's why we're repeating every single one of them with shocking, astonishing fidelity. And it's memoir. It's uh, my own uh, years uh, through most of the period I'm writing about uh, as a professional, uh, an editor in New York, uh, uh, and then a correspondent uh, abroad, right? And a- ending with my my years uh, as uh, what we're now calling an independent journalist, right? Um, uh, I clocked out of the mainstream uh, in, uh, I don't know, 2010 or so. Um, been functioning as an independent journalist ever since. And I make the argument that that's where the future lies. The future lies with independent journalists who have a different – the core question is, what is the relationship between journalism and power? At the moment, it's, it's just the way it was during the Cold War, a very corrupted relationship. There's no independence. Any notion of a fourth estate is, that's thats a dusty antique, right? Uh, um, and, and we have to restore that. Uh, and, and I think the restoration is going to be driven by independent media. So that's the book. The memoir is kind of a, gives some narrative f- uh, flow and force to it.
0: Well that's that's powerful you're right at the cutting edge when the institute for new economic thinking is contemplating how to make a difference the notion of what I'll call educating versus educating citizens versus credentializing as inputs to production and how that matters to education what people choose how strong the body politic can be it it derives from i have read years ago jane jacobs final book called dark age ahead i um, haven't seen chapter that three is called it. credentializing versus educating and i'll i'll, uh, I'll pass that on so to she you moved away from thanks for she
1: moved day. beyond urban studies and all that huh
0: that's correct she was in toronto and wrote this just fantastic book it, it was released in 2000 she had a great
1: I'm intellect ahead. she had yeah. a great
0: yes yeah, she did and and yeah, and did. her
1: her humanity, the way her humanity informed her intellect, I think, is is part of the reason she was so effective as a writer.
0: Yeah, yeah. and you know, people like her, uh, a friend of mine who's at Wayne State University in Detroit where I grew up, Jerry Heron, who's written about universities and the myth of cultural decline. He wrote a book called After Culture, about how media refracted and demonized the city of Detroit. And I used to say they divorced Detroit. They didn't rescue it. They didn't make it a part yeah. of the nation. They told everybody the American dream is fine. Those people cause their own problems. <laughs> so, uh, but but I think this this realm that you're exploring vis-a-vis journalism, like I've been exploring vis-a-vis education, is about how healthy and how capable the body politic is of. Reacting in our own interest, our own collective common good interest, vis-a-vis some of the yeah. forces that I, we've been exploring. I, today. I
1: need to. I'm working on the. I'm revising the introduction now, and I, I'm very eager to make the point. Look, this may be a book about journalism, but it's a book that all of us need to be concerned with, right? Uh, uh, because um, you know, uh, I quote in the, one of the chapters. I quote Jefferson. This wonderful. Mo of his, he was writing back to a friend in America while he was serving as minister in Paris. Right? And he said, uh, if it came to a question of a government without newspapers, or newspapers without a government, I would, without hesitation, choose the latter condition. <laughs> and And, and we don't what we have now is government without newspapers because the relationship between the media um and and political and and corporate power and the difference between those two is very hard to discern sometimes right uh, um uh is 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 v- very diseased it's it's uh it's very it's direly bad uh, um Uh, Quite corrupt, Uh, and so in consequence, the 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 press serves uh, political power to uh, such a faithful extent that we effectively have government without newspapers. These these papers, I know it sounds a bit extreme. I, I stand by the judgment. They're basically bulletin boards.
0: Well, that's in part why I founded this podcast that sensibility and that's very much why I asked you to come and join me here today bless you Rob the light you shed on things it reminded me of my namesake and his song the first verse of Crossroads I went down to the crossroads fell down on my knees I went down to the crossroads fell down on my knees ask the Lord above have mercy now save poor Bob if you please (laughs) well I'm using this bandwidth and these things to, right not just about poor Bob, but poor yeah. poor America, poor world, because we are at a crossroads, yeah. and you are shedding light on things, and uh, I'm tempted to uh, bring up another song, Todd Rundgren, I saw the light in your eyes, from the time we first met through our friend Marshall, there's a light within oh, you, bless and you, I want well. both celebrate it and encourage it, and encourage my young people who are defining meaning in their life and their career, to take Uh, your example. uh,
1: One, if you're broadcasting to students, uh, one little shard of advice. uh, Look up the word discernment. The Jesuits have an excellent definition of this word. It means autonomous thinking. It means learning to think, to discern means to think for yourself And make your own judgments uh, free of the influences of others. Not to say you don't learn from others, but uh, um, uh, discernment. There's not enough of it. Uh, In my own courses, I teach it, right? Uh, Whatever you're teaching, uh, to a certain extent, maybe you agree, you're teaching students how to think, right? Uh, uh, And um, uh, maybe your students want to look up that term. That's what they need. Well, in,
0: Yeah. Well, in modern psychology, there's a lot of discussion of what they call the true self versus the pleaser. Mm,
1: interesting, interesting. The
0: pleaser is going out and getting credentials, getting rewards, making their parents proud, getting lots of money or whatever, but they're not acting from the heart. And the true self is finding your pathway where you can look in the mirror and not feel ashamed. Is that, a, is that another book I, I should read? I, Who wrote that? Well, that, I've seen it in many different contexts. I'll have to look. Uh, but I think it's a it's a beautiful uh, dilemma that we see people facing. And it it's, comes primarily from the acknowledgement that you are a part of society then other people matter. But how you matter for them or whether you're a coward and what you might call playing the music they want to dance to unmindfully is a very big challenge. So uh, I'll, I'll try to find some, some resources in that regard. But, uh, but that notion of what is the true self and how would I say finding your own pathway I think is very important to my young scholars and to our young people, that challenge. I think that's one of the one of the things we can contribute at this juncture. And obviously, we'll stay in touch, uh, perhaps for other episodes as Ukraine, U.S., China, world system unfold. But but thank you. Thanks so much you're for today. You're very welcome. This was really you're delightful, you're and welcome. and you you're an enormous uh, you're an enormous force for good. Thank you, Rob. We'll talk again soon. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org.
1: And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. And I'll know my song well before I start singing